Well, we're continuing our study this morning in uh, our series on the book of 2 Corinthians. And, and if you have a copy of our, our Recharge book, you may or may not have noticed that the subtitle of this whole study is Authenticity in Ministry. And um, as we've gotten into these last several chapters of the book, we're really digging into this concept of authenticity in ministry. And honestly, a lot of what uh, I've been studying and reading and so forth, I feel like just really applies to me personally. And and in all honesty, sometimes I'm struggling to figure out how I need to make application for everyone. And then I remember something that somebody said once in a sermon, and that was, every member is a minister. <laughs> and, and so I hope that as we, as we move forward in this study, um, we, will, we will look at ministry as not just what the, the professionals do, but as something that every one of us is a part of. Now, in a few months, I'm going to be celebrating my 33rd anniversary of when I gave my life to the gospel ministry. And if you said, wow, he's not that old, I want to say thank you. And if you said, wow, that's all, <laughs> then we'll talk. I don't know. But July 11th, 1990, at Sagamont Baptist Bible Camp in Saginaw, Missouri, uh, I fully surrendered my life to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he called me to serve. Now, some of you were there that night, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. But yeah, you were there. And um, while others heard about my surrendering to the ministry soon thereafter, some of you were actually there. And I want to thank you if you were there that night. I want to thank you for not telling me about all your concerns and your reservations about the decision I was making. Um, thank you for your encouragement and thank you for not telling me what you really thought about my ministry prospects at that time. Uh, I had a conversation with one of you, you know who you are, recently about um, your, your thoughts and your opinions of me as a teenager. And I was like, wow, I really didn't have him snowed at all, did I? Um, thank you for, for your grace in allowing me the last 33 years to grow up a little bit. And I hope I'm still doing that. Um, I made my calling known to my home church, Springdale Missionary Baptist Church, the Sunday after camp. And then I preached my very first sermon that following Sunday um, at Springdale Missionary Baptist. Um, I still have an outline of that sermon. Actually, <laughs> quit laughing, John. Um, I've shown you that outline, haven't I? Yeah, yeah, that's why he's laughing. Um, uh, one of the church members there gave me a copy of that outline just a few years ago. And the sermon, you, you're probably thinking, man, I wish he still preached this way. But the sermon was about 17 minutes long and had 23 texts. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, yeah. So I preached my first sermon that, that Sunday in July. And believe it or not, that same day, that night, 
uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church out west of Centerton on Highway 102 invited me to come and preach my second sermon, same day. I am assuming it's the same sermon. I don't have a record of it. Um, but uh, over that next year, I was a senior in high school. And over that next year, there were very few Sundays at all that I was able to go back to my home church, Springdale Missionary Baptist, because I was preaching somewhere in some church somewhere uh, throughout northwest Arkansas and northeast Oklahoma. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat thankful that I have lost most of the sermon outlines that I preached that year. Um, I say that I'm thankful because uh, the few that I still have are pretty embarrassing. So, um, you know, God has been equipping me and God has been preparing me for his ministry ever since that time. Well, even before that time, God was equipping and preparing me for the ministry that he was calling me to. Uh, some of that training, uh, that equipping process was formal training, you know, such as going to Bible college and getting a, a four-year Bible degree and then eight years of seminary grad school after that. Uh, that was formal training. But, you know, as important as that was, that was by no means the only training I received. Some of it was institutional training where I was serving in churches or, or teaching in schools or Bible colleges or or other ministries. It was more institutional. But some of it was informal. You see, the impact of the influence of others on my life, whether that was a mentor or, or a ministry partner. Um, you know, uh, we were talking just a moment about the Jerry Kidd offering that we're taking up for World Mission Sunday. You may or may not realize this, but Jerry Kidd who, by the way, is still alive and doesn't understand why they named an offering after him while he's still alive. But anyway, um, he was one of my greatest mentors. Um, pouring into me and um, uh, setting me straight like very few other people are able. Um, I mentioned last Sunday a man by the name of Robert Murphy, a ministry partner that we had for many years while we were serving in the Philippines. Um, his influence on my life, both for good and for bad, was huge. Um, and, and I'm so very thankful for men like that. So some of my training was formal, some was informal, some was institutional. But you know what? A lot of my training was just simply painful. And I'm not talking about writing research papers. I'm talking about being in the crucible of situations that just break your heart and tear you to pieces. The painful lessons seemed to be the ones that had the greatest impact in my life. Both on me personally, but also on me spiritually. But all of these things through the work of God in my life, have worked together to make me into the pastor and the minister that I am today. 
These things make up my credentials, if you will, for serving in the gospel ministry. It's my resume. It's my curriculum vitae or my CV, you will often call it here in the U.S. Um, it's who God or how God has made me who he wants me to be. Now, there's another aspect of the ministry that impacts who I am as a pastor and minister. And that is referring to the people that have been a part of that ministry. Uh, the people that I've had the privilege to serve over these past 33 years have made an impact on who I am and how I approach the ministry. And as I think back to all the different places I, I have served, whether that was in England, Arkansas, or Conway, Arkansas, or Palestine, Texas, or Legaspi City, or Bacolod City in the Philippines, and now here in Rogers, as I think about all of those places, there are certain events and certain individuals that just stick out in my mind. The ones that rise to the top in my memory are those individuals whose lives were transformed by the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I remember all the little kids at Antioch Baptist Church in Conway uh, that are now grown and have their own children because, again, 30 years ago. <laughs> um, I remember one in particular. Well, I remember several, but uh, I don't have time to share all those stories. But I remember one in particular. Her name was Lana. And Lana trusted in Christ as a very uh, young girl, first grade. And by the way, my role at Antioch Baptist Church in Conway was the director of children's ministries. And so what that meant was one of my responsibilities was to preach in children's church every Sunday. I had a congregation of about 30 to 40 kids that were in first to fourth or first to third grade. And I was in there by myself, just so you know. Um, uh, what a learning experience. But Lana was one of those kids that trusted in Christ as our Savior. And, you know, like I said, some of the things that God has been preparing me for, that I do now, he's been preparing me for a very long time. Uh, you know, a lot of you have told me how much you appreciate the recharge books that I give you on a regular basis uh, and how it, it is a companion for you to help you remember what we're doing uh, what we're talking about on Sunday helps you remember it all week long. Well, in 1995, with first through third graders, I was giving them uh, a spiritual journal to take home every week, <laughs> believe it or not. And Lana was one of those little girls that was doing that. And I'll never forget the day that her father came up to me livid. I mean, truly livid. This could have been a sarcastic thing, but no, he was truly livid because his little girl had asked him why he didn't have a quiet time with the Lord daily like she was doing. I remember that very, very clearly. I also remember my first week as a pastor. I had just moved from Conway down to East Texas. I had gone down there to uh, work on my Master of Divinity degree at the BMA Theological Seminary. 
And I moved in on Saturday. I preached my first sermons on Sunday. On Tuesday, I started classes at the seminary. And on Wednesday, I got my first domestic violence call. Whew. Let's see, that was 1998. So I was uh, 26, 27 years old. That's younger than David, just to clarify. I was green. I didn't know what I was doing. I was scared to death. And what made it even more interesting is that the domestic violence call that I was called in to counsel this husband and the wife he had battered and the child, the child was a member of our church, the husband and wife were not, and he was a parole officer. I was scared to death. Now, it helped that when I, I went up there and, and actually saw the guy, um, he wasn't much taller than Amy, actually. So it, it really was a good thing. You know, I, I felt okay at that point. Um, but what's even more memorable about how short he was was that that day, Larry and his wife, Kathy, came to know the Lord as their personal Lord and Savior, were baptized, and their lives were miraculously transformed. I also remember Cat and Tin Tin. Their real names were Catherine and Christine, but they went by Cat and Tin Tin. Two little girls that lived around the corner from us in Legaspi City who when we opened up our yard and started having Bible studies for children, they were there and they brought their friends and they brought their neighbors and, and they trusted in Christ as their Savior and we started discipling them. And by the way, um, I say little girls. Um, you know, uh, Amy, you made Tintin look really short, honestly, because she was about four foot three um, and uh, thought she was probably in third, second or third grade, found out she was in eighth grade. Uh, at the time, but you know, um, led them to the Lord and started the process of discipling them and talked to them about their need to identify with Jesus Christ through baptism. But because of their age, you know, eighth grade and sixth grade, um, I said, I will not baptize you without your father's permission. Their hearts just broke said, he's not going to do it. I said, I'm sorry, girls. I will not. This is too important to do this without your father's permission. Their mother lived in the Middle East, worked uh, in the Middle East, and sent money home. So dad was the only parent, really, that was there. And so they walked away from my house that day, just devastated. And as I was listening to the conversation, I was trying to make it out because they were speaking in a, uh, a different dialect than what I knew. I, I spoke Tagalog, but they spoke both Tagalog and Bicolano. And so there were a few things they, they said, but I, I picked up on, on part of it and figured out what they were actually saying. As they were walking away from the house, uh, they, they looked at each other and said, oh, I, I know what we could do. Maybe we could ask him when he's drunk. Mm. Two days later, 
we lived on a little dirt street. They lived up that street over a block or two and then down another dirt street. Um, two days later, I hear noise coming toward the house. And they're yelling, Pastor Wade! Pastor Wade! I had no idea what it might be. I was upstairs in our house, and so I came down and got to the gate as quickly as I could. But as I was getting to the gate, and they were running down the street, I heard them say, He said yes! Several years later, 1010 um, passed away uh, from a congenital issue, brain uh, issue. Uh, it was a tumor, and uh, she's gone on to be with the Lord, as did their little sister, who died as well, both knowing Christ. Catherine is now married and has a baby of her own. Um, that meant something. One last story, and it's about a lady named Ellen. Ellen was a, a special lady. Uh, she actually came to work for us through the recommendation of a, of a friend, and, and so she was in our house a lot. Um, you know, when you live in a, in a country that's full of dirt and sand and you have, you know, no screens or windows on your house, you have to mop a lot. And so she did a lot of mopping um, and different things, but... Ellen was an unbeliever. Ellen uh, was very uh, she was very much in, involved in the whole concept of mysticism of, of trying to pay homage to all of the different deities that she perceived around her. And over time, she started to see us as different. And we went eventually and started having Bible studies in her home. Ellen came to know the Lord as her Savior, as did her uh, three niece, or two nieces and a nephew that lived with her. And um, we were praying for uh, her mother, no, her father, uh, who lived in the home with, with them. He was there, but he never came and got involved in the Bible studies. And so um, one day I was out at their house and, and different things, and I was able to talk uh, to the dad. And, I, and I, I just felt impressed of the spirit that, Wade, you really need to, to push him to a point of, you know, is this the time that you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ? And so I started talking about that. And and got to a place of, you know, have you come to a, to a point in your spiritual life where you say for certain that you know you would go to heaven if you were to die? And he looked at me and said, oh, oh, meaning yes, yes. I said, okay. Well, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say to him? I expected to hear the the boilerplate that it was the answer for most of the the people living there in the Philippines of trying to live a good life and different things like that and he very clearly and distinctly he said to me it's because I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my personal savior it's because he died for me and I placed my faith in him and I said where did you hear that he said oh I've been listening to all the Bible studies 
good thing there aren't windows on the, the houses, right? Um, I remember those situations. And in every one of these situations, I, I feel a sense of love, but also I feel a sense of paternal responsibility toward these individuals. Uh, it, it broke my heart when I walked away from the Philippines knowing that I was not going to see those people probably again in this life. Um, I want what's best for them. Just like any father would want what is best for his child. And I'm heartbroken when they make decisions that displease the Lord. One of my closest ministry partners from the Philippines um, is not currently involved in any church. She and her husband have uh, split up and I'm heartbroken for her. Um, so we've been talking a little bit. I've been encouraging her. A faithful woman of the word. But you know sometimes we get off track. We get consumed by um, the events of life. And things overwhelm us. Or we get enamored by something and we go a different way. Whatever the case may be. We're easily swayed in a different direction. Well, as we look at this letter to the church at Corinth, we need to remember that Paul was the first person to ever share the gospel in this prominent city in Achaia, the province that Corinth was situated in. You see, Paul went there on his second missionary journey, according to Acts chapter 16 through 18, which records that missionary journey. I, I pulled it up there and you can see a little bit, you know, it's, he was in Troas and received the Macedonian call. And so he went over to the province of Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. And chapter 16 records some of those things that happened there. You'll remember the story of the Philippian jailer. He was in Philippi, thus the Philippian jailer, right? And so then from there he went down to Thessalonica and then eventually made his way down to Athens and from Athens where he preached that amazing sermon at the Areopagus. Then he went over to Corinth. He was the first Christian to ever take the word to Corinth. And he stayed there in the city of Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. Imagine, uh, one of the things I loved about what David and Rachel shared earlier uh, as they were sharing about their, their mission trip were all about the relationships that they, they uh, experienced and enjoyed and built in, in their two weeks there. And, um, you know, David's, oh, this, this, is one, this guy's one of my favorites. But the next slide, oh, this guy's one of my favorites. Um, I, I think he had seven favorites. I, I may have lost count. I'm not sure. But, but the relationships that were built in those two weeks were phenomenal. Life-changing. Imagine spending a year and a half pouring into these people 
Imagine the feelings that Paul had for these people after that time. He led fellow tent makers Aquila and Priscilla to the Lord while he was there at Corinth. And they, along with a few others, became the core group of that church in that city. Now, as we've said before, there were issues surfacing in that church that greatly, discern, that greatly concerned Paul. But he saw himself as a spiritual father or a mentor to them. And so as a mentor to them, he was compelled to deal with that situation in such a way that would honor God and bring about the desired results. The problem was, the members of the church did not fully understand the situation. They didn't understand that there was a problem. And you know what? You can't fix a problem if people don't recognize the problem exists. Their lack of self-awareness um, was, was the issue. They did not understand what was going on. Dane Ortland points it out points out by saying, Paul's beloved flock in Corinth is flirting with spiritual adultery without knowing it. In the first half of chapter 11, Paul exposes this danger and pulls back the veil on his opponents, revealing that these super apostles were, in fact, false apostles. And they were, according to verse 13, and according to 14 and 15, they were servants of Satan. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. So Paul had to confront the, these people, these beloved individuals in Corinth. He had to confront them with these issues. But how did he do it? How does a person get the attention of professing believers who are viewing gospel ministry through the world's eyes rather than through God's perspective. They are seeing things through the foolishness of men rather than the wisdom of God. Well, Paul did not do it by shouting them down or defying them outright. But rather by opening with an acknowledgement that what they were about to hear was strange. That's what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to be turning there, you'll see what I'm talking about. Because there in verse 1, Paul asks the Corinthians to bear with him. When in reality, it's Paul that's bearing with them. But he's asking them, would you bear with me? Um, and then he says, with a blend of self-effacement and sarcasm... He breaks the spell of ministerial impressiveness that his opponents have placed on the Corinthians. He's saying, let me be really real here because what you're seeing is a whole bunch of fake. So let's read this passage uh, this morning. I, I'm, as I do sometimes, I'm going to read it in sections. We'll start with the first and then the second and then the third section. So... Starting out, let's just read verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. 
do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So the first thing that we notice this morning is that Paul is a minister of the true gospel. He's a minister of the true gospel. And this, this section honestly could be its own sermon, but I'm going to hopefully get through it quickly and cover all the points. The first aspect here is that Paul has a pastoral love that he expresses to the people in Corinth. After he says, bear with me a minute, as I'm, I, I say these things in a, in a foolish manner, bear with me, he then tells them that I feel a divine jealousy. He loved them, and that's his motivation for confronting them about this issue, because of his love. A divine jealousy. Now he uses this concept of divine jealousy to convey his feelings because it's a very biblical concept. If you remember, uh, God tells his people throughout the Old Testament that he is a jealous God. Starting in Exodus chapter 20 when he gave the Ten Commandments. He said, uh, don't bow down to idols because I the Lord am a jealous God. Worship me only is what God says. He says that again in Exodus 34. He says it again in Deuteronomy 5. He is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, detailed the account concerning forbidden idolatry. That idolatry was wrong because God was a jealous God. Joshua 24, he gave him a reminder that as... As they were about to enter into the land of promise that he had told them to go into. He said you're going to encounter all different types of idols and other lowercase gods. Don't worship them. Don't bow down to them. Don't make sacrifices to them. Because I am a jealous God. Four other times in the major and minor prophets. God refers to himself as being jealous. Now, when we think of the word in English, jealous, uh, it always, almost always, I think, it has a negative connotation. But in this situation, a divine jealousy is a good thing. Imagine it this way, if you would. Imagine an engaged virgin who was in love with her fiancé suddenly finding herself tempted by the seducing words 
of a much more attractive man who has cruel intentions toward her. Sounds like a, a primetime TV show, probably. You, know. um, you see, Paul warns this bride of the folly of giving herself to this other, more attractive intruder. And he's doing this because this love is threatened. This pastoral love is threatened. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about how the serpent deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he said, in the same way, you in Corinth, the church at Corinth, are being deceived, even by a similar temptation. In both cases, Satan dazzles with what is flashy and immediately attractive in a way that complicates and compromises a childlike trust in God. These super apostles were impressive, outwardly impressive. They were dazzling. Paul explains what the temptation is for in, in, in verse 4. Notice what he says. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, don't do any of that, he said. We brought to you the unadulterated, pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And that gospel never changed. And it will never change, Paul is saying. Don't believe anything else. Even if I came to you and started telling you something else, don't believe anything other than the truth that you were given at first. Folks, our methods for reaching people with the gospel may change, but our message must never change. It is Jesus Christ alone that is the truth of the gospel. Paul used the word that, you know, you've put up with it readily enough. This concept of put up with it is the same Greek phrase that's found at the end of verse 1. When it says, bear with me, he's saying, you've, you've put up with them, now put up with me, basically. He said, you've put up with this long enough. You've, you've listened to this teaching long enough. You need to get rid of it. And so the last thing we see in this section is that this pastoral love is defended. Here in verse 5, Paul uses one of my favorite forms of verbal irony. It's the, it's the form called sarcasm. Some of you are very gifted at your use of sarcasm. I think Paul was very gifted at his use of sarcasm because he, he refers here to these false teachers as super apostles. He did so because they considered themselves super apostles. 
And so he mocks them almost in this way. Paul uses the descriptor to expose the way in which these fraudulent teachers exalt themselves, but in so doing merely disclose how empty and powerless their gospel was because they had to exalt themselves because the gospel they were giving had no power in and of itself. Though he doesn't want to do it, Paul defends himself and he defends his ministry in comparison to these super apostles. Folks, we must never promote ourselves in the ministry. We must never try to build our little kingdoms in the ministry. But we also cannot sit idly by as the truth of the gospel is hijacked by a counterfeit version. If someone is trying to teach something other than the pure, unadulterated truth of the gospel, we must stand up for God's word. I love what Paul said uh, here. Verse 6, he said, I may not be a good speaker, and for sure I'm not much to look at, <laughs> but... My writings have been absolutely clear on this topic. He said these super apostles are teaching a false gospel. And for sure that is not displaying the love of God. Paul is a faithful minister of the true gospel. Now I keep using that term, true gospel. What is the true gospel? Well, first of all, gospel means good news. From the Greek word euangelion, which is a combination of good and news, uh, or good messenger, um, it is the good news from God. And so the good news is that even though we are sinful, and even though everything that we have done in this life has worked against us to separate us from God because of our sin God has made a way for us to be reconciled with him and the way that he did that was by sending his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for the sins because the penalty of sin is death he paid that penalty when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, he made the way for us to experience eternal life in him. All he asks us to do is trust in him. That's it. And you know, for some people, especially the really smart ones, that's just not enough. That's too easy. It's too easy to just trust. What do you mean just trust? I got to do something to... To fix this problem. No. It is merely trusting. Because you have nothing. Of value to God. He loves you just the way you are. And he asks you to trust in him. And get yourself out of the way. That's the pure gospel. Paul wrote it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for by grace 
you have been saved through faith. Grace meaning something you don't deserve. Faith meaning trust alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one is able to boast about it. It's not about me or what I have done to be received by God. It is all about Jesus Christ and my faith in him alone. That is the good news. But folks, the super apostles were trying to add to that requirement for eternal life in Christ. They wanted the Gentile believers to follow the instructions of the law of Moses. All of those things about circumcisions and sacrifices and, and offerings and, and the, the celebrations and all of these things, they were trying to say, in addition to Jesus' teaching, you must do these things and keep the law. Well, Jesus addressed that in his teaching. The apostles dealt with that at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Paul deals with this on several different occasions in his letters. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans. Let's look at how he addresses this issue in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, I alluded to it a moment ago. Chapter 6 verse 14, the Bible says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We're not under the law. We have no requirement to keep the law in order to have reconciliation with God. God has gifted us by his grace, his unmerited favor, eternal life and eternal reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that, Brother Wade? If you keep reading in Romans chapter 6, you get down to verse 22. I actually read this last Sunday, but I think it's important to read it again this morning. I'll read it from a different translation today. But now that you have been set free, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he saying? You don't have to keep the law to experience salvation. But when you experience salvation, the fruit or the result of that salvation is doing good works. But it's not by good works that you get salvation. Rather, it's the result of salvation that brings about good works. Folks, there are many false gospels being taught in the world today. There are a lot of people out there that say it's this and this and this. The question is, is do we recognize false teaching when we hear it? Do we recognize false teaching in a book when we read it? Do we stand up for the truth? When the truth is not being proclaimed. If we hear or read someone's teaching that says something more than faith alone is needed for salvation. Then we need to call it what it is. It is false teaching. 
Paul stood up for that. Well, let's look at the next section of Scripture there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Begin reading again in verse 7. We'll read through 11. The Bible goes on and says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. That was the province where Corinth was located. Verse 11. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Well, the second thing I want us to notice this morning is that Paul is a philanthropist of the true gospel. A philanthropist. I think probably you know what that term means, but just in case you don't, a philanthropist is someone who freely gives money and help to anyone who needs it. You see, Paul wasn't giving money, but he was giving something of great value. He was helping people to know the truth of the gospel. So how did Paul function as a philanthropist in Corinth? Well, he preached the gospel to them free of charge, is what it says there in our text, in verse 7. He also received financial support from other churches, uh, you know, other places he administered, supported him while he served there in Corinth. But he served the people in Corinth without any pay. He didn't even ask for help when he, he found himself in great need. Now, if you remember, all of chapters 8 and 9 was focused on money. It was an encouragement to provide generously for the needs of the churches back in Judea. Uh, and also, it was guidelines for how to handle these funds. So, so the concept of giving wasn't the issue here. Uh, it's important that we note that Paul required no compensation for his ministry among the Corinthians... But even still, the Corinthians were so complicated of a people that even him not getting paid created a problem there in Corinth. His question exposes the folly of any objection to Paul's free of charge ministry. Now, Paul served in this way without any support. But the Bible is very clear that pastors have every right to earn their living from the support of the church. Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter 10, that those labor in the ministry are worthy of their, their wages or deserving of their wages. Paul described the financial support that he received uh, in Philippians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul wrote, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he's saying it's okay for a pastor to earn his living uh, from uh, the, the ministry of the gospel. There are other verses that talk about this as well. The point is this. Paul had every right to earn his living through the preaching of the gospel or you know, being supported by the churches that he served. But in Corinth, 
he chose to work as a tent maker to earn his own support. So what can we learn from this? I think what we learn from this is that there is not just one right answer. There's not just one right answer. Take our church staff for an example. Uh, you may or may not realize any of this, but just so you know, as, as your pastor, lead pastor, whatever you want to call me, um, I am a full-time worker of the church. I don't make money outside of what you give me on a weekly basis. Or, you know, sometimes there are love offerings and different things. I am full-time here at the church, as is Pastor David. We both work here full-time and you support us. But we have four pastors on staff. Brother Ron Fields used to be full-time, and then he retired. And we said, no, you can't retire, come back. And so for the last eight and a half years, he's been serving as a part-time. We provide him with a, a small sum of money, but he, he does other things. You know, most of what he does otherwise is all giveaway too. But, you know, um, so that's what he does. He's part-time. But Pastor John, you may or may not know this, and I didn't ask him if I could tell you this, but it's no secret. Pastor John is one of our pastors as a volunteer. He receives no money. And that works really well for him because if he doesn't have time to mess with me, he says, no, I'm done. I don't have time right now. And that's okay. I'll take anything I can get from him. But he's volunteer. The same is true in our office staff. Miss Elaine uh, is our, our church secretary, or I call her our office manager. Uh, I like that title better. She still calls herself church secretary. She's a part-time employee. But her husband, Ron, who is our uh, financial secretary or treasurer or whatever you want to call him, does everything that he does on a volunteer basis. What's the right way to do it? There is no right way only one way it could be any of those and I think that's what we get from this this passage one thing is for certain you should not get into vocational ministry if you hope to get rich from it if you're in the ministry to get rich then then you've either chosen poorly or your motivation is all out of whack there are some very rich pastors, and I'm not condemning pastors who are rich, but I would ask, what is your motivation when you're serving? The desire to become extravagantly wealthy will skew your perspective and your motivation while you're serving. Now, notice I'll use the word extravagantly. Folks, there are a lot of churches that think they need to pay their pastor as little as possible to keep that man humble. I would tell you that is wrong. And not just because of me. Biblically, that is wrong. Two things about that. First, if a pastor is constantly concerned about how he's going to be able to pay his bills, he is not going to be as effective in the ministry. It's not like a pastor can work a double shift and get some overtime. Because, hey, by the way, I work a lot of double shifts. <laughs> Pay doesn't change when you're a pastor. 
And typically, additional income sources are frowned upon, especially if you're serving in a full-time basis. So that's one. The second thing, I think it would be prudent to read 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18 in regard to this point. Because Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and said this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Churches have a responsibility to take care of the people who serve. If that person decides, no, I don't need it, that's up to them. And that's why Paul was a philanthropist of the true gospel. Very quickly, I need to move on to the last point. I don't know if I, I think maybe my, my story's got a little long this morning, and so I'm scared to even know how long this sermon has gotten, um, but you're still with me, so hang with me for just a few more minutes. The third thing we see is that Paul was a guardian of the true gospel. Let's look at verse 12. It says, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. So in this last point, we see that Paul is a guardian for the true gospel. Paul promises them that he's going to continue to do what he's been doing. And what he's been doing is that he's been boasting of the validity of his ministry methods over the methods of the super apostles. Now there's nothing wrong with this kind of boasting. If, it was, if boasting is done for the sake of others, in this situation for the sake of the Corinthians, then there's nothing wrong with that. He was boasting in the truth of the gospel. And in Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 14 says, But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is boasting about the gospel. And so there's nothing wrong with it. And he said, I'm going to continue doing this. I'm going to continue boasting in order to undermine these false apostles. Now that word undermine there literally means to cut off these super apostles. To, to cut off their influence from the church. Paul knows that they present themselves as guileless or innocent, or authentic, or transparent. They present themselves as being people without guile, but in fact they are self-serving, seeking to win over fans of themselves more than they're looking to gain followers of Christ. So Paul promises, I'm going to keep doing this. Paul's doing it because of the imminent threat this posed to the church there at, at Corinth, to the ministry there. Notice what Paul's description of the false, prophet, or false teachers is 
in verse 13. He calls them false apostles. These are fraudulent people parading themselves as authentic, but they're fakes. He calls them deceitful workmen. People, it refers to people who are deliberately cunning or trying to deceive others. What must be appreciated is that while the, the, the descriptors of false apostles, deceitful workmen, uh, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, that conjures up this really dark, foreboding image of sneakiness and evil, evil leadership that would be off-putting to most any believer. But the problem is, is that's not how they were coming across. Throughout the letter, it's been clear that the Corinthians are on the verge of yielding to their leadership because they disguised themselves as ministers of righteousness. It's essential to recognize this for what it is, and Paul calls it out in verse 14. He says that this is a scheme of Satan. You know, one of the most effective lies that Satan has ever pulled off is convincing the world that he is a cute little red angel with horns and a pitchfork. And I'll tell you why it's so effective. Because not only does he present himself as being harmless, he also presents himself as being easily recognizable. You see, if, if you're easily recognizable, then it's not a problem. It's not a problem when uh, someone is, is coming up and they say, oh, well, that's Satan. I need to stay away from that. But that's not the way it works, folks. It's hard for us to recognize. Hmm. Verse 14, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The trouble is that this was not how the Lord Jesus conducted his ministry. Are you hearing me? That, that's not what Jesus did. You see, Jesus took the road of rejection and shame and ultimately the road to death. And as his followers, we should do the same. You see, the true gospel or the good news about Jesus is such good news because people are aware of their sin and their need of salvation and their need of a Savior who suffered on their behalf. Folks, when I recognize my sinfulness and when I recognize, recognize my deep need of salvation, I will not focus on my ministry efforts and my self-promotion. Like my Savior, I will forsake everything for the advancement of the gospel. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's at this point when I am suffering for the cause of Christ. Not 
self-promotion, but self-abasement, suffering. It's at that point I am ministering with true authenticity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message of your word. And Lord, forgive me for taking so long today, sharing so many stories. Lord, um, help us to see Paul's heart here and how all he wants, everything that he wants is just for the good of those that he served in Corinth. Lord, help us to take this message, this, the truth of this message, and Lord, help us to see how too often we're promoting self instead of our Savior. Lord, help us to be authentic in our ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.